Father, we ask that you would help us, all of us, Father, struggle with areas of temptation. They may be things that we consider less insignificant or more significant, but we know that all of them, if we fall to these temptations, interrupts our relationship with you. We would ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, fill us with wisdom, that we might have the strength within ourselves by the power of your spirit to overcome these temptations, to resist them. We know that there are rewards for this, and I pray that you would remind us of this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, not everyone matures to the point that they should. They remain immature, but this idea of resisting temptation means that is a sign, if you're successful, of your growing maturity in Christ. Now, this particular book, it is well known that Martin Luther had a problem with this book. He called it Right Strawy. Uh, is, and what he meant by that is there was no substance to it because it deals later on with works. That if you have faith, you will have works. But if you go to Romans and Ephesians, you're not saved by works. And Martin Luther just didn't like this at all. And so this particular little epistle here, it contains metaphors and similes. There's rhetorical questions. There's 54 imperatives or commands in 108 verses. And it's almost like every other verse has a command that do this, do this, follow through with this, make sure you pay attention to this. It's just a lot of instruction. And it's picturesque, it's passionate, it's similar in style to John the Baptist, a very fiery, fervent, strong, uh, the passion just kind of flow th- flows through there. There are several parallels to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And five Old Testament books are quoted, and as many as 21 are alluded to. So here we have a faith that works. Romans, again, was the inner saving faith that comes from God's perspective. And James is the outer serving faith that comes from a human perspective. The date of this writing was in A.D. 45 to A.D. 48, somewhere in there. Uh, And, of course, A.D. means Anno Domino in the year of our Lord. And it goes back to the time that Christ was born. Now, Christ wasn't born on zero. They think it may have been three A.D. or a little bit before, they don't know, but it's real close to that time. So this would have been 45 to 48 years after the birth of Christ. So just a few years after he died, because he died at age 33. Now, the recipients of this letter were the 12 tribes of Israel scattered among the nations. So it was to the Jews, and James, the author of this, was a Jew himself. The purpose of this letter where there were problems dealing with the rich. Some were vying for positions as teachers. Some were sick. Some were turning away from the Lord and his salvation. There was spiritual immaturity. They needed to know the marks of a mature Christian. There was impatience and difficulties. There was talking but not living the truth. There was no control of the tongue. There was fighting and coveting. And there was collecting of material possessions. All these things were endemic to the Jews, but not just to the Jews. It's a letter for all of us because this is a problem for everyone. Now, the author of the letter, James, he tells us it is him in verse 1, the first word, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. 
Now, there are four James, Jameses, that are mentioned in the New Testament. There's James, the son of Zebedee, <clears throat> the brother of John. <clears throat> he is listed in Mark chapter 1, verse 19. There's James, the father of Judas, and this not being Judas Iscariot. There's another Judas that's an apostle. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, in Mark chapter 3, verse 18, and James, the half-brother of the Lord. So which one is this? Well, it's not James, the son of Zebedee. He could not be the author since he suffered martyrdom, and he would not have been around when this took place. And then there's James, the father of Judas, and this is, again, not Iscariot. He did not figure as an important person inside the early church. He wasn't the one really giving directives, although he was... An apostle, it is believed that he went to Iran or Persia and was martyred over in that country. And it's unlikely that it was the little-known son of Alphaeus. And there is an attempt by the Catholic Church to make it James not the brother of Jesus because they want to hold on to the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she never had any more children, that all the children that are listed are... uh, of Joseph and not of Mary, and they were older uh, than, um, or Joseph was older, and he had those children when they got married. And so there's this finagling to try to make that to happen. But I believe it was, in fact, James, the half-brother of the Lord. And if you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, specifically in verse 7, this is where Paul is giving the gospel. And he says, first, Jesus appeared to the twelve. And it goes on to explain that he appeared to 500. And then he appeared to James. Specifically, it says James and then to Paul as one abnormally born. So he already appeared to the James that was one of the 12. But then he appeared to this other James. Now we know James, the half-brother of Jesus, was also the head of the church in Jerusalem. And Jesus specifically showed up to his half-brother to make sure he knew he was the Messiah. But there was this doubt. You know, the brothers and the sisters did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought he was a little Looney Tunes and showing up. They come to collect him when he was teaching inside a home. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? And, And he claimed that it was everyone around him that did the will of God. And it wasn't his immediate family. But James, his uh, younger brother, half-brother, he was the one that was appointed by God's decree to be the head of the church in Jerusalem. And also in Acts chapter 15, where the decrees, the, the, the confrontation with Paul and the Judaizers was there. And James was the one that spoke for the apostles in Jerusalem. Again, the half-brother of Jesus. <clears throat> and so he was very determined, very passionate, very forthright, giving commands and uh, with those commands, the, making sure that they followed these directives. And, and you go through chapter 1 here, and you're just going, wow, he just says one thing after another. Do this, do this, do this. This is temptation. This is what happens if you follow through with this instruction. He, he's just very much to the point. He doesn't waste any time. And so in verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything now on one hand you might think this is a trial like a trial from the outside that's coming towards you because you're a christian and you're being persecuted as a believer but if you take the context the entire context of 
James chapter 1, I believe that's not the case. I believe he is dealing with not trials here, but temptations. If you go back to the original word in the Greek, it is used in verse 2 here. It's used in verse 12, I think 13 and 14, and it's all the same word. It is temptation that he is dealing with. And so when you see trials here, He's actually talking about something that you would be tempted with or a challenge that would be in front of you, an enticement to sin or a trial due to one's bodily condition. Like you are tempted to do something. Maybe you have a tendency to devour chocolate and chocolate in moderation is just fine. But if you eat a five pound box of C's candy at Christmas, that's probably not a good thing. Uh, or if it's alcohol and you're given to alcohol and the excess of alcohol, that's not a good thing to be given to excess. But we all have our particular temptations and they're still with us. They just don't go away. It's because we have that fallen nature. And this temptation, again, it's an invitation to do something that you are aware and that you aware of and you should not do. That's what a temptation is. Now, When we are tempted, we're able to say no to that temptation. And it develops in us uh, the ability to say no to further temptations when we resist it. So it's like training, resistance training. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but if you go to the gym... You start out, maybe you're doing uh, curls. You know, it's where you either do it with the dumbbells or the barbell, and you lift that up, and you're building up resistance in the bicep. And if you go behind your head, you're building up resistance in the tricep. If you want to get your tricep big or your bicep big or your pectorals big, you do the bench press, all those different things. Don't skip leg day. And, And once you do that... You starting, or you're starting to build up resistance in the muscle and you're making it stronger. You're making it more stout. Every time you push that weight or you curl that weight, you're making your muscle stronger. Now, it's real easy when you're young to build up that muscle. When you're older, it's a little more difficult. It's harder. You can't walk as fast. You don't have as much cardiovascular strength as you had when you were younger. But when you do that exercise, you are able to do more and so that's why people go to the gym over and over and over is to practice the resistance to practice getting more strength the same thing applies spiritually if you have a temptation that comes to you and you start saying no you build up strength for the next time it comes along now we are all tempted by so many things and i go through i go through phases like with food I definitely go through phases. I go through phases where I want chocolate milk. And I'll drink chocolate milk right before I go to bed. I'll drink it when I get up in the morning. You know, I just, I love chocolate milk. And it's just one of those things, you know, or or donuts. I've told you about my temptation with donuts. I love donuts. You know, I could eat four or five. I used to get the whole family together after church when we were going to Calvary Chapel La Mesa. We'd go to the donut store and we'd lay out all the donuts. and We'd eat them around the table and then we all zonk out because of the greasy food, you know. We, we would do that all the time. And <clears throat> then I would get this incredible drive i'm not eating i'm losing weight and i would start resist the food i would smell you know places i work i smell bakeries and when you're hungry and you smell the fresh bread you're going oh you could start floating towards the smell of the fresh bread or or you go by some uh, japanese restaurant and you smell the cooking or a mexican restaurant and you smell the cooking and that's the temptation you go nope 
I am convinced I'm going forward. And you're able to do it for long periods of time when you resist, resist, resist. And God set it up that way for us. So this temptation will come along. And when we resist the temptation, we develop perseverance. And that perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the more you resist temptation, the more mature you are, and then you are an example of faith to others who are around you, that God is able to do this work in you. Now, with this temptation, in verse 5, there's going to be, well, how do you resist the temptation, and what if I don't believe it? What if I don't believe I'm going to be able to resist him? This temptation. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all he does. Now, in the context of temptation here, God will give you wisdom if you just ask God, how do I resist the temptation? Now, I don't know about you, but I have a tendency not to do that. I just have a tendency to make the choice. I don't turn to God and say, God, what do you think is the best choice here? Now, knowing scripture, I kind of know what the best choice is, but I don't want to ask. You close your ears, you go, I don't want to hear what the answer is. I want to say yes or no, but mostly yes. I want to go for the temptation. Why? Because the flesh says, oh, this is good. You're going to like this. You're going to participate in this and it's going to be okay. It's going to be wonderful for you in the flesh. But God gives us the wisdom. He says, nah, it's probably not a good idea. Probably shouldn't go down that road. You go down that road, it's going to cause some problems. And of course, most of us fall. But then if you think, well, God's not giving me the wisdom to do it. He's not giving me the strength to do it. No, God already says he's given us the wisdom. And if he, we ask for it, <clears throat> he'll give us as much as we need to overcome any temptation. Now, doesn't this seem just like black and white? This is what we have to do. Just ask for wisdom. We'll overcome the temptation. We'll be mature. And voila, we are walking with Christ. No problem, right? Except the one problem is we have the flesh and it drags along with it. It, It's almost like you were chained to a real dead body that you're dragging along the whole time and you're supposed to be running, but you're chained to that dead body. And you can't run. But all you can do is just say, no, I'm not going to do it. And God gives us wisdom. Remember Joseph, the coat of many colors, when Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with him? And she grabbed his cloak, sleep with me. That's really inviting for some guys. I Not, you know, but he pulls him in like that. And he gets out of his coat and he runs away is what he does. God gave him wisdom. Just Get two feet going, man. Just get the two feet and you'll be out of there and you won't have to worry about this temptation. Of course, we know what that led to and his imprisonment. But we want to make sure we understand God gives us the wisdom. He's given us the ability to say no to temptation. We just have to accept it and not doubt that he has given us the wisdom. 
we conflate that information in our mind and in our spirits and we say, I just don't know because we want to go to the temptation. We don't want to admit God has given me a way out of this. We just don't want to take advantage of it. Now, <clears throat> Patty and I, we just went to the what used to be known as the Del Mar Fair. We went to the San Diego County Fair. And the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the bolsa of pride of life are all through that place. You walk in, <clears throat> the first hall you come to on the left-hand side, beautiful flowers, just wonderful flowers that are there. You walk a little farther in there and you see the jacuzzis, the barbecue outdoor kitchens, the ADUs that are craned in and dropped on your property so you can have an extra living space or a rental space for a larger area for living on your house. And we saw that and went, ooh, isn't this nice? And isn't that nice? And <clears throat> you look at the pergolas that are there with the fans and the full barbecue setups. And you can get this small barbecue that's five feet long for $7,000 and it can be yours today. Don't you want that in the beds that cost $6,000? Oh, but you'll sleep just like a king or a queen on that king or a queen bed. And it's just going to be wonderful for you. And is your house too hot? We'll get this house fan that it will just cool down your whole house. And we have a special today on this fan. And it's only $3,000. But for you, we will take off $1,000. And, and you go, oh, man, look at this lap pool that's a jacuzzi. And just think how the family would benefit from that. And there was one person that was there with the timeshares. Hey, look, you can win. You can win a three-day vacation here. You can win this or that. And all you have to do is put this little this peg in there. And it just drops down and go through all the other pegs and gets to the bottom. And you win something. Let us tell you what you won. And then you go for the timeshare presentation. I, I had to stop one woman. I said, look, I want to spare you. We're not doing this. I don't want to waste your time. We're going. And we had to say no to several things. Not that I said no to everything. That popcorn was good. But you, you say no to several things that are in there. You have to be able to do so. And, and not only that. We could have got our teeth whitened, a tile and vacuum cleaner, a timeshare, soaps. Oh, I did get some soap. It was very nice. The pergolas, the landscapes. You could get beef. You could get sheep. You could get pigs. Oh, sale on bacon, bacon, bacon. Deep fried everything. Oreos that are deep fried. Butter that is deep fried. Turkey legs, popcorn, ice cream, cotton candy, fudge, and funnel cake. Gemstones and jewelry. Fine handcrafted furniture. Blenders. Water softeners. Massage chairs. Cars, trucks, and vacation. All of those things things. How many do you want to walk away with? You could have bought one of everything that was in there and your eyes would go, I want that in my backyard. Or I want to go on that vacation. If I have that particular truck or vehicle over there, people will look at me and like, oh, you're so good. You must be doing well. So all those things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it was all at the fair. And that's not even to mention the midway of what you can do, what you can accomplish, and people flying off. The, no, they weren't flying off. But you, you get the idea of those things spinning around and what you can endure. It's just an eclectic mix of things that are meant to appeal to our flesh is what it is. Now, you can go there and you can enjoy the time. You eat in moderation. You see the knife the nice craftsmanship that's there and the nice things that they offer. You spend time with somebody and you can do the fair like that. You can see the pictures and the crafts that little kids make and you just go, okay, that's nice. That's wonderful. And you can do it that way and not be tempted. But people go there all the time and they're tempted to buy things and they shouldn't. And so it's a testing 
in the context of the fair, of the temptations, to fulfill the flesh. But transfer that to other moral issues like sex, money, drugs, speech, power, holiness. All of those things we have temptations to go astray in. And God says, no, I've given you the wisdom not to go astray in those things, which means you also have the strength, the inner strength to do what is right. The next thing that the people were being tempted with is probably a little bit of hatred, uh, jealousy on the inside, envy. In verse 9 it says, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. So there is an exhortation here not to look at somebody who is rich with jealousy or envy. Now, envy is, I want to have what they have. Jealousy is, I want to have what they have, and I want to destroy what they have, and I mean harm for them with what they have. They should be taken down a notch. It's jealousy. That, By the way, that emotion is going through our country right now. They're trying to divide the rich and the poor and races and just have this jealousy that is there. We see it not only in media, but across the newsrooms uh, through the United States and, and just in the schools. They're, they're trying to bring up this jealousy and envy. And those are never good attributes to maintain. And so there was this uh, command, there was this imperative, do not envy the rich. And the person who is poor should not boast in their high position. Well, what do you mean by that, this high position that they're in? It means, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have great standing in heaven, those who are poor. But the rich, they're going to fade away. In my particular line of work, I have been in very expensive homes, uh, people that have just made millions and millions of dollars. One company sold for $400 million, and I was, I've been in their home uh, several times, and another one for $44 million has been in their home several times, and just all the stuff that is in the home. <clears throat> and when I was young, I can remember magazine ads that would have everything from skis to hang gliders to Porsches to pool tables. You name it, it would be in this advertisement. And as I'm older, for me, that's work. That's maintenance. That's caring over stuff. I don't want stuff. The fewer things I have, the more minimalist I am, the more I like it. The less that's there, the more peace I have. You guys, you have homes you live in, I presume, and you have faucets and refrigerators and dishwashers and garbage disposals and tubs and shower valves, and all of those go bad. And when one of those goes bad, you you have to fix all of those things. Well, multiply that with all the stuff in your garage. Of course, we don't have enough because we have to put up a tent in the backyard, a temporary garage in the backyard or a shed. And if that's not enough, then you have to go rent a shed somewhere. And if that's not enough, you have to have a place to store your stuff. And and it just goes on and on. And it's just more and more and more work. And God says, you know, godliness with contentment is great gain. But when you have a bunch of stuff, 
You're always worried about the stuff. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 12 says, The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich man permits him no sleep. And so you just worry about what you have. And God says, you know, it's probably better not to be poor, but to have just enough. And you have a little bit of abundance to share with others. But if you have so much, you're always worried about maybe losing it or having your car broke into, your house broke into. It's like, well, if you don't have anything, you don't have to worry about it, do you? And so there is peace and contentment. And so James is exhorting the 12 tribes of Israel, don't be jealous, don't be envious over somebody who has something. And those who are poor, they should look at their high position in Christ. They have great reward when they come into existence with Christ if they are believers. And Proverbs 17.1 says, Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting and strife. It's better to just have a little garlic bread from Maricaro's, you know, chomp on that stuff. It's like, it's all good. Uh, rather than have a whole family over, a complete spread that has been catered and there's just bickering and fighting going on in the whole house. It's better to have less. Now, usually the young person doesn't really realize that. They just want stuff. But the older you get, you start going, well, you know, this isn't so good to have so much. Imagine winning the lottery. Now, you've heard these stories about people who win the lottery. I'm going to give you a couple. In 1997, Billy Bob Harold Jr. thought his struggles were over. He won $30 million from the lottery and planned to live an easy life. After quitting his job at the Home Depot, he took his family on a Hawaii vacation bought family and friends' houses and donated tons of money to his church and charity. Unfortunately, he began to receive unwanted attention, demanding money, and also made a bad deal with a company that provides lump sum payments to lotto winners, getting much less than he originally would have received. After he and his wife separated, he went into a downward spiral and shot himself in the head before he died. He told his financial advisor, winning the lottery was the worst thing that ever happened to me. This is just one story out of 25 that I was reading on a particular website. Here's another one. After Denise Rossi won $1.3 million from the lottery, she kept it a secret and days later divorced her husband. After 25 years of marriage, she said she didn't want him to get his hands on it. However, a judge ordered her to give her ex-husband the $1.3 million in full because she didn't disclose the money and acted out of fraud and malice. One more. Here's one more. Willie Seeley and his wife were simple people, but all that changed when they won the $450 million from the lottery. At first, they just wanted to live a leisurely life, but things didn't work out that way. First, they had to split the winnings with 15 other others that also pitched in to buy the ticket, leaving them with only $4 million. Still, he was able to leave his job, buy the things he wanted, and do the stuff he wanted. Despite all that, he and his wife still considered the money a curse, saying it drew them unwanted attention from the long-lost relatives, beggars, and even television producer on the planet. Seeley's advice to any future winners, run. That's what he said. So if you win the lottery, you know, you think it's going to work out well. And I'm sure there's plenty of stories that have. The people have been wise. I've heard stories where people 
They don't give their names out. They want to remain secretive. They consult the financial advisor. They wait till like the last week to declare the winnings and they just go away anonymously. Now that's probably wise. Now whatever they do with the money, I don't know. Lord willing, they were using it for good purposes. But 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we could take nothing out of it. But if we had food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptations and a trap and into many foolish and harm, harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And so contentment is the rule of the day. You know, we have a few things. It's nice. We live in a comfortable society. It's good. Most of us, I think, we have our health. And if we don't now, it will eventually reach its demise. But we don't have to worry about all the possessions. And this is what James is telling the Jews, the 12 tribes. Don't worry about that stuff. God will take care of it. You know, God feeds the sparrows and he cares about us and he's going to feed us as well. And then the trials, the heavenly reward for enduring these temptations. In verse 12 it says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial or temptations because when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So it's our job to resist. Now again, we don't like to do that. Our flesh says, no, just indulge. You deserve a break today. I did it my way. Remember all those songs that are out there? It's for you. And we don't want to do that. So to persevere means to remain, to tarry behind or abide, not recede or flee uh, under misfortunes and trials, to hold fast to one's faith in Christ, to endure, bear bravely and calmly when ill treatments come your way. And so it's like you stand your ground. You don't give in. You don't give up ground, so to speak. And these trials and temptations will come, and they might be severe, but we are called to resist them. Now, the nature of temptation, its origins, and the danger of falling to the temptation. In verse 13, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he by his own evil desire, is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So where does God say the temptation to sin comes from? It's from us on the inside. It's from our fallen nature. It doesn't come from anywhere else. Satan comes along and says, go ahead. But the temptation to fall is in us. The world would say, look at this glittery thing. Don't you want that? It doesn't come from there. It comes from us wanting that thing. It is from the inside. It is to try or test our faith or character. An enticement to sin is what this is all about. This, this trial that comes along. God does not create the temptation for you to fall to. He does not set it up and say, let's see how he does. Let's see if he falls for this thing. God is not that kind of God, the God that's revealed to us in the scriptures. Now, it's always God's permissive will when temptation comes to allow it. In other words, God steps back and says, you can have what you want. Go ahead. But he doesn't put that thing in front of us. He just says, go ahead. So his permissive will, his perfect will is don't fall to the temptation. But his permissive will is, he's hands off, says, 
It's your choice. You get to do what you want. And the primary way we are tempted is by our flesh, our own desires. The world and Satan reinforce those desires. The world and Satan can and do place before us temptations, but it is our choice to fall to them or to resist them. Now, some might argue, well, the Lord created everything that there is, so he therefore is ultimately responsible for the evil in this world. And if you listen like the YouTube teachings, the atheists that are out there and they try to dismiss God, they can say, God's ultimately responsible. He created everything. Even your own word, they would say, declares God is everywhere. He's in hell. He's in heaven. He's in the depths of the ocean. He is everywhere. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. All of those things, they hold God responsible for it. But I've given you this before. And that is, God did not create evil. But some people say evil is a thing. Remember the syllogism? God created everything. Evil is not a thing. Therefore, God did not create evil. And I related to you in the past that evil is like rot in a tree or rust on an automobile. You can't have the rust without the steel in the automobile. The steel is good. You can't have rot in a tree unless you have the tree. If there is no tree, there is no rot. The evil has to be somehow connected to the good, and it's a corruption of the good. It's a privation of that which is good, and that is what Satan is responsible for. That's what Adam and Eve brought to us through the human race, their desire to do that which was evil in the eyes of God, and therefore we all have that fallen nature. It has come to us through the act of the original sin. So evil is a lack, like I said, it is a privation, and it cannot exist unless there are good. there is good. And if you say that there is evil, by extension, you're saying there is good. If you are defining what evil is, even if you are an atheist, you are also declaring there is good. What is the ultimate good? The ultimate good is God. So if you say there is evil, but there is no God, it is actually a contradiction. If you say there is evil, there is God. So what is your objection? You see, that's, that's the whole point of the philosophical argument there. And so God wants us to understand that we are dragged away. And it, it, that's a pretty descriptive term. It means once you give into it, Somebody hooks you and pulls you in a direction. And it's your flesh that does that. Pulls you in that direction. And God wants us to stand against that. Now, in the kingdom to come, the new trees, they will not have rot. In the new heaven, will there be metal? Probably. There could be iron of some kind. Will it rust? No. It won't rust. It won't decay. We will not decay. We will not grow old. Now, I don't know what our ideal age will be when we get there. If you could pick your age, what age would you pick? If you could say, I want to be that age, the age that I was at that time, would it be 10 years old, 12 years old, 19, 21, somewhere in there? Or now, would you want to be this age? You want to look like you look now and say, that's the body I want when I'm in heaven. I don't think any of us want that, right? But when we get there, we're not going to decay. We're not going to fall apart. We're not going to sin. We're not going to be tempted. And that's the great thing about having the new life in Christ. 
Now, we are also not to be deceived. And verse 16 says this. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadow. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. So do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. God does not give us bad gifts like temptations. He only gives us good gifts. He never gives us anything that is sour or sorrowful in, in the way that it is a gift. And something like a temptation is a bad gift. And he is the father of the heavenly lights. And he chose to give us birth. And he, he talks about salvation here. And, and that kind of a first fruits. Which means this wisdom that we have over temptation is a sign or it is the first fruits of all those who are going to be in heaven. He's demonstrating, remember this was written 2,000 years ago. It was given to those people then that they are receiving and become the first fruits of those who are in the kingdom. It's the church that's going to be raptured. It's the church that's going to be the bride of Christ. And there's going to be people in heaven that aren't part of the church, the bride of Christ, the nation of Israel. People are going to be saved and glorified bodies that are up there. And But it's all going to be faith in Christ but that's the first fruits. We are an example of that for when the kingdom comes. So what are the good gifts, again, that God gives us? He gives us the wisdom and he gives us the faith, using those in conjunction with each other to overcome temptation. This idea of first fruits is also listed in Exodus chapter 23, verses 16 through 19. God gives a directive to the nation of Israel, celebrate the feast of harvest with the first fruits. And undoubtedly, James is referring back to this because the Jews, the 12 tribes would have known this. Of the crops you sow in your field, celebrate the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops. Three times a year, all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. Do not offer the blood of sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast the fat of the festival offerings must not be kept until morning bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the lord your god so you're supposed to go out in your harvest field or your your vineyard or your orchard whatever it was and you were to take the best of the fruit an offering to god and take it to the tabernacle or to the temple and offer it to god then we go on this apparently they had a problem with anger verse 19 my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Have you ever been so angry you just you want to do something? You, you want to carry out some act of violence or something like that? I've been that angry. Just the other day, I was talking to my wife about this. I was thinking about Antifa and BLM, and these people who are robbing the stores and they go to jail and they get out right away. And I'm, I start thinking in my mind what I would do to them. And I can feel it just coming up on the inside. I, I just recently saw this video. This young man, hooded, walks into a store and he's just clearing stuff out of the store. And there's either, I couldn't tell if it was a police officer or is a security guard. And he just hits him with a stun gun and the kid tries to get away and he's just beating the stuffing out of this kid. And I'm relishing it. I'm just going, yeah. You know, 
No, that's not very Christ-like. You know, I'm, and I remember where I was when I was thinking this. I'm driving down the road. I go, that is not the mind of Christ, you know, as I'm, I'm driving around. But I have this sick sense in me. This, well, it's a good sense. This justice. There needs to be justice for this stuff. And I'm yearning for it. I just don't want justice for myself. I, I want it imposed on everybody else. And, and so God knows that in us is this sense of justice and it can lead to anger and that anger can lead to temptation and that temptation can lead to sin. And so he says, reel in that anger. You know, we're to be angry, but do not sin. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 says that. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry and do not give the devil a foothold. And you will certainly do that if you lend yourself to anger. Now, with this in verse 21, he talks about immorality. He says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. <clears throat> and basically, the, the immorality that is in our country today that is just pervasive, it is everywhere, God says, have nothing to do with it. And I think as believers, we are to pose it, oppose it. We're supposed to stand up and say, this is not what we're supposed to be involved in. Now, there's a few more involved here in the book of James, and I'm not going to get to the end. But again, these are directives. These are imperatives. This is a way for us to overcome temptation. He tells us how temptation comes. It's because of our flesh on the inside. He's provided us wisdom to turn away from that. It's just we mostly don't want to do that. We don't want to turn away from the temptation because it appeals to our fallen natures. And God says, you know, crucify daily the flesh. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Romans chapter 12 verse 1. But we don't want to do that. And so that's our struggle. My prayer for you is that you're able to stand up. And for myself, we're able to stand up and say, no, I will not give in to this temptation. By the way, temptation is not sin. The sin comes in when you follow through with the temptation. Because we all have evil thoughts. That is our nature. And God says, rope those in. Take every thought captive. So what we're going to do now is understanding that God has given us wisdom and the faith to overcome temptations and resist evil there. We need to give him thanks and recognition for this. And we're going to do that by receiving of communion. And the way we're going to do that is Kim's going to come up and she's going to uh, prepare a song. But up here, we have changed the communion cups. There is no longer a need to get your little fingernail underneath the tab up there. We're still going to take a few precautions where you'll come up and you'll just take it. Uh, Dennis, I think you'll be in charge of that. And, and you can go back to your seat. So you'll just come up the middle. Dennis will come up first and he'll open this up once Kim begins to play. And you'll grab what you need and you'll go back to your seat and you'll hold on to it until we can participate in receiving communion together. And if we can get the center lights down, that would be great. Thank you.